culture and economics are inseparably intertwined. Certain economic systems allow families to thrive. Thriving families make market economies possible. You cannot separate the two. The pathologies of modern rural America are familiar to anyone who visited downtown Baltimore in the 1980s. Stunning out of wedlock birth rates, high male unemployment, a terrifying drug epidemic. How did this happen? Here's a big part of the answer. Male wages decline. Welcome back to the Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. And today we're joined by Dr. Michael R. Strain. He's the Director of Economic Policy Studies here at AEI, as well as a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Before coming to AEI, he worked in the Center for Economic Studies at the U.S. Census Bureau and in the Macroeconomic Research Group at the Federal Reserve. He's with us today to talk about his recent Bloomberg column titled Stop, Poor Mouth, and the Two Are in a Family. This was an article in response to an ongoing debate among conservatives about the impact of women entering the workforce. This is kind of kicked off with Tucker Carlson um, saying, giving a monologue back in January. Since then, it's been featured in a New York Times op-ed, a Ross Douthat column again in the New York Times. And it's quite interesting and controversial between both Democrats and Republicans and among conservatives themselves. But rather than just tell you about it, we decided to interview one of the participants ourselves. So without further ado, here is Dr. Strain. Dr. Strain, thank you for joining us on Banter today. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be on the new Banter. You didn't. I don't want to say anything disparaging about the old hosts. I noticed you didn't say improved. But... I don't want to say anything disparaging about the old hosts, but I will say that I am excited about the next chapter in the life of this great podcast. All right, well, hope... and I think it's in great hands. I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready. <laughs> All right, as we mentioned in the intro, we wanted to talk with you about your recent Bloomberg column called. Stop poor-mouthing the two-income family. And this is kind of in response to this Tucker Carlson monologue that happened back in January about just the effects women are having in the workforce. And then there's this long Helen Andrews piece in the New York Times that went on with it. So can you... you Tucker said that when mothers went to work, it was a disaster for the American family. Yeah, so I don't want to straw man the argument, and I don't, but I also don't want to, you know, try to summarize it and get it wrong, because it's a bit of a delicate subject. That's just what so, he wrote. So I'm going to leave that to you. What What is the Tucker and the Helen he wrote, Andrews? He wrote that on the internet. Okay. And... Why are they wrong, and what's your counter-argument? I think the argument, uh, or you know, perhaps the most charitable uh, interpretation of the argument, or the best argument that, that, that could be made, is that the entry of women into the workforce has placed a lot of pressure on families. It has you know, had some unintended effects on you know, the prices of consumer goods, and that many families feel pressure to have two incomes and that that pressure results in some you know non-trivial uh, number of women working more than they would like to um, and that that has kind of knock-on effects that are that are bad that's 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 uh, I think the kind of argument that was put forward in the Helen Andrews op-ed I think you know, a second argument is that, uh, and this is more of the Tucker Carlson argument, that as women have gained in the labor market and as their wages have grown and as, as their wages have caught up with male wages, they are less interested in marrying men. And that that has contributed to a number of 
uh, social problems and that we need to, you know, I think, I think Carlson says, you know, hold your applause for rising women's wages because, look, it means that people aren't getting married and it means that they're out of wedlock births and it means that people are raised by, you know, single, single parents and it means that, you know, men have less pressure to work and all this other stuff as well. You know, it's a complicated argument for sure, and I, and and I don't want to you know suggest that I've captured it fully, but I think I think that's a you know uh, you know I think that captures I at least that's, part of what yeah, they're saying. Tucker at one point says in the monologue, increasingly marriage is a luxury that only affluent people can afford, and he says the line you said where he talks about how women's wages are wages are rising, but then he says, "Hold your applause on that," which. You gave the kind of charitable interpretation right there of what his argument was. But then in your Bloomberg column, you kind of – I'm not going to say tear the argument apart, but you seem pretty – you disagree with it. I disagree with it quite a bit. Yeah, I disagree with I disagree with basically all of it. Specific, can you give some specific examples why? Well, it depends on, on the specific assertion. The idea that uh, you know, women entered the workforce and that this – you know, meant that households had more income, and so there was more pressure to live in the nicer parts of town, and that drove up housing prices. And you know uh, that um, you know a similar dynamic took place in uh, healthcare, and a similar dynamic took place in childcare, and a similar dynamic took place in education and higher education. Um, and that uh, you know, as a consequence of these price increases, uh, women are working. But everything's more expensive, and so they're no better off. You know, households are no better off than they were before. Uh, all these women started the work. You know, that I think is just analytically incorrect. You know, if you look at the, you know, so if you if you calculate kind of a measure of of uh, average prices and see how that's see how that's grown, right? If you try to measure inflation, you know, inflation inflation measures include the price of housing, they include the price of healthcare, they include the price of daycare, they include the price of education. Um, and you look at household income even after adjusting for those changes in prices, you see that it's actually, you know, gone up a lot. Uh, and that it's gone up a lot, you know, not just for households at the top. It's gone up a lot for typical households in the middle class. It's 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 gone up for low income households. Uh, so you know the argument, the argument is just is just wrong. You know the kind of you know broader argument that we should you know hold our applause for women working just seems, or for women's wages rising just seems completely ridiculous. I yeah. mean, it seems to. It seems to, uh, you know, or at least it can be reasonably interpreted as blaming women for a lot of these social problems. It can be interpreted as, as blaming women for, you know, increases in the prices that people face. And, and uh, you know, that's just, that's just ridiculous. Um, yeah. Well, so the more charitable interpretation, though, I guess, would be this isn't just an argument that Fox News hosts and social conservatives make. Isn't this partially based on the Elizabeth Warren book from 2003, I think? the two-income trap, mm -hmm. where she writes about how as millions of mothers poured into the workplace, it became increasingly difficult to put together a middle-class life on a single income. The combination has taken women out of the home and away from children and simultaneously made family life less, not more, financially secure. Today's middle-class mother is trapped. She can't afford to work, and she can't afford to quit. Is that just a misreading of the economic data? Do you think? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's largely disconnected from 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 reality. Um, I mean, I think that there. Look, there's no question that a lot of families feel pressure to earn for both 
uh, for both spouses to work and, and to earn that income. And that pressure is a very real thing. But ultimately, what we're talking about are choices. You know, so if you want to live in a nice neighborhood with lots of nice amenities and, and you know, if you want to, you know, you know not have a long commute to work and, and if you want to, uh, you know, pay for, you know, private schools for your kids or whatever, you know, then, 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 you know, more income helps. Um, but what I, you know, something that I just find confusing about a lot of these arguments is that there are, you know, there are still a lot of households where only one person works. And, you know, that's even true in expensive places to live like Washington and New York. Uh, it's certainly true in places that are relatively less expensive to live uh, in the rest of the country. You know, I, I mean, I mean, look, I, like I have, I have no doubt that a lot of, that a lot of households feel uh, the financial pressure to have both spouses working. Certainly mine does. My, my wife works and that's certainly something that we, you know, pressure that we feel. And, and, you know, there, you know, we have a lot of conversations about, you know, does it make sense for my wife to keep working? Does it make sense for us to keep paying for daycare? You know, and, 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 and that's a real, that's a, that's a real challenge that households face. But, you know, ultimately that challenge is, you know, the consequence of a choice. And if, and if we were to decide, uh, okay, well, you know, it's nice having a, you know, 25 minute, your 30 minute commute, but you know, that means that we have to buy a really expensive house. And so let's, you know, let's let, you know, let's move further out of town and get a cheaper house and you won't have to keep working. You know, that would present its own challenges as well. And I think that, you know, what seems more helpful to me than, than blaming women, uh, or, uh, you know, as Tucker Carlson seems to do, or, uh, what seems more helpful to me than, um, you know, suggesting that women are kind of caught in this, in this trap where they, you know, have to work and they don't want to work and all the money they're generating is being sucked up by higher prices and the higher prices are higher because of women working in this weird paradox and there's this like vicious spiral. You know, instead of instead of making those arguments, I think what we should be doing is, you know, A, recognizing that personal responsibility really matters here and that and that people's situations are uh, in many cases the product of their choices and that and the choices have upsides and downsides and b you know thinking about is there a role for public policy to you know make raising a family uh, you know a little easier uh, without you know picking winners and losers and choosing one lifestyle over another and 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 um and and kind of you know uh, distorting people's choices in that way well so i'm wondering in the helen andrews uh, op-ed in the times she said that there are quote few fathers and a large majority of women who say they prefer not to work do you have any idea what the actual numbers are in that I don't. I, I mean, I trust. I trust the numbers that that she that she provides. Um, again, like I think, you know, I I I have no trouble believing people say that, and I have no trouble with the data that suggests that people want more kids than they actually have, and and you know maybe they're not having more kids because kids are so expensive. I mean, I think all these things are are totally reasonable pieces of evidence to 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 bring to the conversation. You know, I mean, one way to infer people's preferences is to ask them for their preferences. Another way to infer people's preferences is to observe their choices. And, you know, I think this conversation would be more productive if the people who were engaging in it were just more specific about what they mean. You know, I, you know, are there public policy nudges that draw women into the workforce? You know, sure. Um, But do we really think that, you know, if we didn't have FMLA which guarantees uh, unpaid 
family leave for women who work for certain companies? Or do we really believe that if we didn't have the child care independent tax credit, you know, do we do we think that like millions and millions and millions and millions of women would would leave the workforce? No, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that's the case. You know, I think that I think that certainly these policies can have a marginal impact on workforce participation. Um, but I think that the uh, you know I think that 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 the reason women are working is because for centuries, there were significant barriers that kept women out of the workforce. Um, and those barriers have been removed. And I think that's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for the economy. It's a great thing for those women. It's a great thing for society. Uh, you know, and, and what we should be talking about is how can we continue to take down those barriers? Uh, and, um, you know, what can we do to support what, from a policy perspective, what, what can we do to support the aspirations of these women who, who want to be working? Yeah, I think another frustrating part of the conversation, too, though, is just we can't even – not everybody can even agree on the basic facts of the situation. And you, you see this with this current debate about the two-income trap, but then you also see it with Oren Cass's book that came out where, on one hand, you just have some people saying, objectively, families now are no better off than they were 30, 40 years ago. And in terms of the family life situation, I think it's because they say – yeah, two people might be working now, but really you're not getting much more, like all that extra income that the women are generating is just going to pay for higher costs of housing and education and child services and whatever else. In terms of just how the situation is, you obviously don't think that we're no better off now than decades ago, but why is that narrative so popularly accepted, do you think? I don't know. I don't know why. Um, I mean, I think it's an excellent question. Uh, you know, I mean, in, you know, to me at least, the idea that you know, households today aren't better off in some sort of holistic sense than households were in the 1970s. Uh, you know, that I mean, that just borders on the absurd from my perspective. You know, if you look at household income, that's been been growing and it's, um, you know, been growing for people in the bottom. It's been growing for people in the middle. It's not only the top 1%. If you look at, uh, you know, kind of quality of life measures, you know, house, you know, everybody has air conditioning now. You know, modern medicine is significantly more advanced. Uh, lifespans are are longer. You know, air travel is safer. I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you look, if you look at, if you look at those sorts of quality of life measures, certainly things have been improved. Uh, and you know, a lot of this debate, I think, is really kind of focused on white men. You know, the the idea that you know life hasn't improved for typical households in decades. Well, you know, uh, in the 1950s, black people and white people couldn't drink out of the same water fountain. You know, certainly life has improved for African Americans in, 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 you know, over the last few decades. Certainly life has improved for women. You know, so, you know, it's just, it's just very difficult for me to, to understand the basis for that argument. Well, to play devil's advocate a bit here, though, in this Bloomberg piece that you wrote, you said the middle-income households have seen their incomes rise by one-third since 1979. Shouldn't it have gone up more than that, given how many more people have entered the workforce, given well, productivity a, uh, increases, everything over the last 40 years? So that's a so that that's that's adjusted for for 
you know, things like household size and, yeah. and, 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 you know, that's, that, that takes into account changes in the population, you know, should it have, should it have gone high? I mean, it, you know, uh, way, you know, compensation increases have been closely associated with productivity gains, you know, so there's not some, you know, big divergence between compensation and productivity. You know, that figure includes government transfer payments, so that figure takes into account public policies that are designed to uh, mitigate the effects of, of market-driven income inequality. Should it have been higher? I mean, you know, I think Americans have high expectations for uh, for their income growth. That's a good thing. Um, we should have high expectations. Uh, we have an extraordinary economy and we're an extraordinary country and uh, it's good that people expect to have significant increases in their in their purchasing power and the purchasing power of their wages and incomes year after year. An increase in what did you say? A third was it? Yeah. Um, you know, an, an increase, and then I think after, if you take into account the transfer payments, it's like forty six percent or something like that. Um, but you know, an increase in purchasing power of one third based on uh, market income and social insurance payments is a significant increase in purchasing power. I mean, that'd be like, you know, the I mean, the equivalent today would be if, you know, somebody had $100 and I came along and gave them, you know, another another 35. But over a period of 40 years. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, I'm saying in order to make it less abstract. Uh, you can just give us $35 now if you want to <laughs> yeah. make it more concrete. Would you turn it down? <laughs> I would happily accept that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but he'd ask uh, for 100 <laughs> You know, well, so... Um, you know, so that I mean, that's 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 non-trivial. You know, or put it in, or you know, or put it in, you know, you know, say it's you know, a hundred thousand dollars to one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. I mean, that's you know, that's 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 a lot of money. You know, sh- I mean, should it be higher? It'd be great if it were higher. Uh, I don't see, you know, a a super compelling economic reason why it, you know, should be significantly higher than that. Um, why it should be double that or something like that. And you know, but we should be. We should, um, you know, a we should not downplay the extent of that of that increase. Uh, B we should continue to have high expectations for income growth. C we should make sure that we are trying through public policy to increase the wages and salaries that that workers, particularly low income workers, can command in the labor market. So we shouldn't be kind of resting on our laurels. Um, but you know, a, a, an increase of one third in in purchasing power is is not something to to sneeze at. So what are these policies then you think that would that would help raise the wages at the bottom? Because this whole debate has kind of been an interesting window and I think like the maybe interconservative debate over how to do this, whether it just comes down to tax cuts, which seems to be what most people wanted for a while, and then there's this whole you were part of this whole new reform conservative movement that had all these different ideas about how what Republican economic policy should look like going forward. So what is your preferred course here? Well, just to raise incomes, I mean, I think I think you want to do a number of things. You know, you want to to strip away barriers to opportunity. You know, there's a lot of regulation out there that that is that is uh, has gotten to the point where it's it's counterproductive and it's it's suppressing people's mobility and it's suppressing uh, the ability of people to find good matches with employers. You know, occupational licensing is a good example of that. You know, there are a lot of issues with residential zoning in cities that are. That are you know probably putting a damper on on productivity and therefore wages. Um, so you want to you want to kind of clear away those sorts of barriers. 
you know, you want to make sure that people have the, the skills that they need. Um, there are some models of work-based learning that could be good to, you know, try and scale up and, and experiment with to get people the skills they need. Subsidizing earnings, I think, is a good uh, a good public policy that's that's worked in the past, particularly helping uh, single moms to uh, to get into the workforce and to and to make work pay. What are some of the market-based policies, either you or other people are discussing, to provide paid leave to or to improve child care for low-income families? You know, these are issues obviously that Democrats are talking about all the time, um, and you don't hear as much generally from mainstream Republican. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so I would not, I mean, I'm not in favor of a, of a federal paid leave program. You know, you can find, you know, a few Republicans who are in favor of, you know, kind of borrowing money from the Social Security system. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a bad idea. You know, but kind of, I mean, taking that back into the context of the conversation, it's not clear to me that the kind of, you know, social conservatives that are, you know, whose views are being represented by the Tucker Carlson's of the world or by that New York Times op-ed, you know, it's not clear to me that they, that they, you know, support a, a paid leave policy because, you know, it seems to me like that's one of those nudges that are pushing women into the workforce and they, you know, think that we have, think that there are too many nudges. They think the nudges are too strong. I don't want to speak specifically about anybody's view on the specific issue of paid leave, but certainly the thesis of, of that of that op-ed by Helen Andrews is that um, you know policy's been been incentivizing and encouraging women to work, and and, and and that's gone too far. We need to put the brakes on that general class of policies. Yeah, and they, I mean, just they go broader than just the whole women in the workforce thing. They, I think, they're just pushing the Republican Party, conservatives in general, to move in just to a much more populist economic direction. Tucker said in his monologue, "Market capitalism is not a religion. Market capitalism is a tool, like a stable gun or a toaster." And his targets in that are he mentions Mitt Romney by name, but he, one of the implicit targets, I think, is AEI more generally and all the standard bearers of conservative economic thinking that that think that expanding markets and free markets are very powerful, not only, like almost more than a tool. Do conservatives need to not move on from the free market? But like, what's your reaction to this when you hear this common argument that, like, oh, well, it's, it's a tool and we conservatives have a problem with worshiping the market way too much? My first reaction to that argument, the reaction that I you know, had during the Obama years, for example, is that that's a reasonable criticism. You know, I think that uh, that economic life is is one part of our 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 individual lives and our life together as a society, and that kind of historically, conservatives and uh, you know have placed too great an emphasis on on economics. You know, but Donald Trump and in this wave of Trumpian populism has really solved that problem and I think has pushed things, you know, much too far in 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 the other direction. Just with his tariffs or what what do you mean specifically? Well with 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 the general you know, with the general approach. Yelling at carrier or the GM for moving. Well, certainly the kind of, you know, crony capitalism type stuff and the um you know, misusing the bully pulpit type stuff. You know, certainly uh, the protectionism, which is just a complete abdication of of basic uh, market principles. Uh, you know, certainly the willingness to engage in industrial policy. You know, the eagerness to you know bail out the agriculture sector from the tariffs, from the effects of the tariffs that the administration is putting on. Um, certainly the kind of rush to coddle 
the uh, working class, you know, the retreat from kind of personal response, the value of personal responsibility and, you know, the approach to the working class that kind of infantilizes them. I mean, there's just, there's just, there's just a lot that's happened in the last few years um, that I think have, have really kind of gone much, much too far in the other direction. And, you know, in many instances, people on the political right are abandoning, you know, basic free market principles in a way that, that, that's, that's very troubling. You know, this is, this is, a specific example that you cite, the market is is not just a tool. The market is a way to organize economic life that is consistent with economic liberty. Uh, the alternative uh, would be um, a system where economic life is organized by the state or, or, or some other some other institution. And of course, economic liberty, you know, economic liberty is good in and of itself. It's not, it's not, uh, only good, you know, because it facilitates other things. It's not, it's not, it's not, I mean, it, it does facilitate other things, but it's not just an instrumental good. People who believe in, in free markets should be comfortable asserting that. Um, and there's no need to kind of cower before populism and, you know, abandon those principles that everybody was on the same page on just a couple of years ago. So, I mean, if you're to go to any of these places that are big Trump areas, places that have seen industry disappear, you know, in the Midwest. I'm from upstate New York, and we've had lots of factories. Where in upstate New York are you from? North of Albany, Glens hmm. Falls. That's nice. And beautiful area. Yeah. yeah. You're with it. I am, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good part of the country. Never, great, never great, been there. Great, Matt's from, great part of the country. That's from Centerville. Max is never invited. Yeah, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. <laughs> no, uh, you know. I'm, outside, I'm still outside the Beltway. There, <laughs> he grew up in the shadow of Dulles Airport. <laughs> beautiful. Place. Not quite the Adirondacks, but... Yeah, no, I mean, lots of places up there. I mean, you can drive for hours, you know, decimated places, places that have voted for Trump. What would you say to these people? You know, obviously there's a classic free trade benefits the country as a whole, but what do you say to people, or more specifically, what kind of policies would you like, market-based policies, to help these people back into the labor force, to help these people who are in some kind of stuck town to get their wages growing again without resorting to government intervention and populist policies? Well, free trade benefits them. I mean, they're not, you know, how, you know, you know, you're, you know, they're, you know, not earning as much money as they would like, or maybe they're, you know, maybe they worked at a factory or something and they lost their job, you know, a few years ago. They're not, maybe they're not earning as much money as they earned ten years ago. You know, it's not going to help them that if they go try to buy groceries or go try to buy clothes or go try to buy shoes or, you know, try to buy an automobile, that, that it's going to be significantly more expensive than, than it used to be. You know, the, the, the premise of the question is what I'm objecting to. Um, it is not the case that free trade, you know, benefits the elites and that everybody else suffers. That's just, that's just uh, you know, that's just wrong. Um, uh, that's just wrong. Free trade benefits everybody. You know, of course, there are some people for whom the costs outweigh the benefits. Um, that's not something that we've learned in the last few years, incidentally. I mean, that's something that economists have known for uh, decades and decades and decades, if not if not a couple centuries. You know, and, that's, and, and that reality has been a part of major economic policy debates in the United States for decades. You know, this idea that we've done all these trade deals and, you know, haven't thought about the losers from trade. It's just ridiculous. It was, you know, this was a this was a major part of the conversation when when the United States uh, 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 formed NAFTA, for example. This was a major part of the conversation around TPP, for example. You know, I think we should have policies that help 
people who, you know, experience a turn of bad luck in the labor market. And whether that turn of bad luck is driven by technological automation or whether it's driven by, you know, globalization or whether it's, you know, driven by, um, you know, a hurricane or, or whatever, uh, we should have policies that help people get back on their feet and continue to, to climb upward. Um, I don't know that we need to do anything, you know, special for people who, uh, you have been affected by trade, but we should have a robust safety net to make sure that people don't fall too far and that people can, you know, uh, uh, bounce back from a setback. And that's a hard, that's a hard problem. But, uh, you know, erecting walls around the United States and keeping out immigrants and, 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 and engaging in trade wars um, is, is only going to make that problem harder. It's not going to make it easier. Unfortunately, we're now all out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Strain, thank you so much for joining us on Banter. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed. If you did, be sure to like, rate, and follow us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you did or did not, either way, leave us a review. We'll be sure to read it out here and humiliate ourselves next week. Matt, anything to say? No. (laughs) With that, look forward to seeing you all back here next week. And Game of Thrones will be over by then, and we can finally stop hearing about it.